It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Karen Cow. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for having me. Or I should say welcome back because you're a UCI alumni. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Fantastic. Back what, in the days. What did you study here? I studied English literature. I got my BA from UCI back in the day when there were still orange groves. Oh, that's so sad. I'm, I, I remember <laughs> visiting years ago and seeing so many orange groves. It was beautiful back then and pretty far from the civilized world. Mm. I know. This is a wonderful university. I can't believe how much it's grown in the 10 years I've been here at KUCI, though. Mm. So tell me about your book. Is this your debut novel? It is. It's my very first. Fantastic. Um, even though I'm the ripe old age of 57, so definitely not too late for no. an old dog to learn new tricks. Never. And you're um, not an old dog, by the way. <laughs> I, think um, I started writing this novel in 2011 after I had quit my law practice. I was a lawyer for almost 30 years. Wow. Yeah, and just decided I am not going to, I'm not happy doing this anymore. Um, I used to do a corporate M&A, so I would buy and sell companies sit in boardrooms with um, big fat men with cigars. Oh, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> How uh, exciting. I, this is riveting. It, <laughs> it was fun at the time. It really yeah. was. I was often the only woman in the room. Of course. You know, which gave me a lot of attention. Um, yeah. Some of it not necessarily positive, but it was actually a huge advantage um, because people remembered me. Mm-hmm. And... Um, when you're the when you're the unique person in the room, people listen to you too. That's true. I I want to interject. The name of my show is Get the Funk Out. So this whole story is screaming funk. I mean, you must <laughs> you really must have been in a funk. I understand what it's like to switch gears and change careers, and it's you're kind of diving off into uncharted territory, um, and it's you have to be brave. Well, it wasn't the first time I'd done it. Um, I went from UCI to law school at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and there I met a Dutchman. And he asked me to marry him, and I said yes, and the week before we got married, he got a job offer to go back to Holland. <gasps> oh, um, my And I think uh, I was 25 or 26 at the time, and mm -hmm. I said, sure, why not? What do I know? So I had already driven off the cliff once and landed okay. You know, I was able to restart um, my legal career in the Netherlands. You know, I became a partner at a Dutch law firm. You know, I had survived the fall once, so I figured I could probably survive the fall the second time, too. Okay. So when I decided to leave my law firm, um, I didn't actually know what I was going to do next. I was thinking maybe I'd go into finance. Uh, you know, I'm decent with numbers. Mm -hmm. I could do, you know, private banking. Um, or maybe I would become a chef. I like that. Yes, there were lots of different options, um, at least that I thought were available to me. Um, but in the process of talking to people and trying stuff out, I was starting to write again as well. And it just made me so much happier, um, happier than I had been in a really long time, to be creative. Right. It, what's interesting is that uh, you're very resourceful. And so you took stock of, what are my skills? I know I can do a lot of different things. 
uh, I have to say that writing not only is it cathartic, uh, but it's just you find yourself through it. Definitely, definitely. Um, I had written a first draft of this novel pretty quickly, I think within six months or so. And, of course, I thought, you know, that was done and dusted. I would just, you know, send it to Penguin or Random House, and they would buy it immediately. Definitely not what happened. I sent it out to a couple different people. And, you know, in very, very polite wording, they all said, this really sucks. Really? Oh, no. Yeah. And the best feedback that I got, and it was from a really kind um, editor out in, in London, he said, this reads like a screenplay. Oh. In the sense that you're relying on your actors to provide the emotion. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, I have a question. Right. Did you have a literary yeah. agent send this out, or were you bold enough to just contact the publishing houses? I did it myself. I, I went out mm. and, and approached publishers directly. Okay. Um, but that had yeah. more to do with, um, well, you know, I tried agents as well, mm-hmm. but I wasn't having any success that way. So you have to, you know, do multiple. Yes. Pursue multiple courses. Right. And then what happened? So what I realized what he was saying, and this is actually sort of goes to the to, to the core of what I'm writing about. I I find it very difficult to express my own emotions. So my novel is all about repression. It's about the inability to speak when you really do need to speak. Um, so the novel is about a woman who is is raped in in the very first couple of pages, and it's all about how she deals with that. She's in a, in a time and a place. This is Shanghai, 1937, and people don't talk about that. Sure. Um, it's, you know, it damages your value on the marriage market. It damages the name of the family, so it gets hushed up. Mm-hmm. And her family tries to get her, get her married. You know, none of this has happened to me, thank God. Um, I'm sure. not writing mm-hmm. about... Um, this particular form of trauma, but I am writing about something that I very much experience, which is not being able to express myself. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the, the trap when you're a lawyer, because you sound, you seem really articulate, but you're actually not expressing your own opinions. You're always expressing your client's opinions. So I had learned to speak and to write and you know, to be convincing, but not necessarily to say what I thought. And what this guy said to me, this editor saying, you know, you've forgotten the humanity in your novel, was absolutely right. I had to dig deeper. I had to find where my own emotions were um, around this story and put them on on the paper. This is unbelievable. You know, I need to interrupt for one second, excuse me, but this is so timely. If you look at what happened on Twitter with Me Too. yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've been, I'm, I'm out in California right now on a book tour and am speaking at a number of different um, venues, you know, historical museums, Chinese societies, but also my old um, high school alma mater. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had to really tee up the whole discussion of how women will not talk about what has happened to them. And, you know, here comes Harvey Weinstein. Thank you, Harvey, for yes. fixing this all for me. Um, it, it resonates so much. Um, not only the women who are talking about what has happened to them, but also the fact that they have kept it bottled up for 
so long. So many years. Yeah, yeah. I totally get it. And then it becomes an avalanche of stories. Well, what I'm finding um, both fascinating and frightening is the way that the mind works. Um, So this thing happens to you, and you have to make it all right with yourself. So, um, you know, creating this fantasy relationship between you and your attacker or actually entering into a relationship, um, as one of these women ended up doing with uh, this fellow, um, you know, the, the mind is a really fabulous instrument to screw us up. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. But it's, it's survival. It's, it's absolutely survival. It goes into protection mode. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's a sh- like a shutoff valve. Wow, so this story, did you have this mapped out ahead of time, or did it evolve as you were writing? <laughs> um, I, apparently there are two different kinds of writers. There are people who plot and outline and create their character sketches ahead of time. Um, I heard Michael Chabon say once that he had, before he sits down to write a novel, he will have all of his characters write to him a letter of introduction. Oh, right. I heard this. Hi, my name's Margaret. I'm 12 years old. I have long red hair that I wear in braids, and I have one chipped tooth. Um, so it's a great... If you can do it, that's that's wonderful. But I am a seat-of-the-pants writer. Me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am. But, you know, you just sit down and you write, and you see where it ends up going. And maybe it's not going to go anywhere, and you're going to have to start all over again. But you know, that's, that's the wonderful thing about writing. I feel like uh, I write the same way, is that I start um, imagining how my character would react, what they would be seeing, what they would be saying. I inhabit, in, what is it, in, inhabit, inhabit the character. And I just, I let it just become this organic process. One of the people who read my manuscripts um, is a friend of mine who is a hypnotherapist. Okay. And she has dealt quite a lot with um, victims of all all kinds of abuse. You know, it might be, you know, child abuse, sexual or otherwise. And what she said after she read my novel was, this woman, given what has happened to her, is acting too, in, in too lucid a fashion. Really? If, if this had actually happened to you, you know, given the time frame, she wouldn't have the words to express what she's feeling, and she would also not be able to present in such a rational fashion. Um, so I started to think about that, just like you're talking about, and trying to inhabit that mind, mm-hmm. and that's how I ended up with cutting. Okay. So cutting and, and rape are not normally, or, I mean, they, they definitely don't have to go together, but what I was looking at with cutting was um, how teenagers these days are turning to, to, to all forms of self-harm, sometimes in, in, in response to shame. Yes. And that shame may also be trauma-triggered, but it could be a negative body image. Um, or an inability to feel anything. And so cutting becomes an outlet. And unfortunately, it can then escalate because the more you cut, the, the, the more you need to cut in order to feel. Unbelievable. So I, would yeah. have, 
young person or an adult or both um both mm-hmm. um, usually the people who want to talk about it have already passed through that phase i see and so they'll talk about you know why they started or that they don't even know why they started um and don't even know why they stopped sometimes it's this look across the room of recognition in a girl's eyes it's really chilling. Wow. Actually. Yeah. Unbelievable. You don't know what you're going to open up when you write your book. No. No. This, you know, I didn't set out on any kind of a mission to write about cutting. Um, it just sort of organically evolved mm-hmm. from trying to get inside the head of my, my main character. But it is absolutely um, resonating with people. Amazing. So I want to get back to um, how did you decide this was going to be one of four interlocking novels? <laughs> this goes back to that suit of the pants problem. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I wrote the novel. You know, clearly needed to rewrite it. Was um, casting about on ways to do that, mm-hmm. and I had an epiphany which is that one of the biggest problems about writing about silence is that you have to show the miscommunication that's going on. So I say to you A, but what I really mean is B. Okay. Um, But that's a really clunky way to do it. Right. Because then I have to be the omniscient narrator and, you know, like pop into everybody's heads. And I thought, no, this is really bad. Um, What I need to do is to to splinter my my storyline into four different parts and take each of these characters and do them as a separate novel. I like that, though, actually, because you see them evolving. Well, it's, uh, um, it's a little bit modeled on the Alexandria Quartet, not so much the, the content, but something that someone told me. Alexander Quartet was written in the 1950s by Lawrence Durrell, and it's, each novel is the name of one of the main characters. So there's Cleo and Balthazar, Justine, and a person whose name I'm forgetting right now. And somebody told me that depending on which book you read first, it completely skews your attitude towards all the other characters. Oh, interesting. Because as human beings, we like the first person we meet. Okay. Normally. Yes, right. Uh, so what Normally. I'm doing is trying to play around with that. So this is the first novel that that has come out. But I'm hoping when I'm done that people will be able to pick this up in any sequence. It's not chronological. Um, and read it, and they are going to get that character's version of what happened. And then they'll pick up the next one, and they're going to hear a, a pretty different version of sort of the genesis of this whole of this whole quartet. Um, Amazing. And I think it's gonna be really fun. It yeah. sounds great. 
It sounds great. I could really see this as a film. Oh, you know, call me. (laughs) (laughs) What a screenplay this would be. Yeah, I think it would be fun. You know, Shanghai is a great um, set for any kind of, you know, visual medium. This quartet, when I'm done, it starts in 1929. So, you know, Great Depression in the United States. Mm-hmm. There's an American boy who runs away from home. He stows away on the ship, and he ends up in Shanghai, and he he does well. Um, he gains power, he gains money, and he falls in love with a Chinese woman. It goes all the way from 1929, when Shanghai is you know the Paris of the Orient, and it's glitzy and it's glamorous, um, up until 1954, when Mao's already in power. The, um, the famine hasn't started yet. Okay. Um, people are still hopeful that communism is going to bring at least peace, if not actual prosperity. Mm-hmm. And it's already starting to, to go downhill. So it's still in Shanghai, but Shanghai has gone from glitzy to gray. You know, the, wow. the billboard signs get pulled down. Yes. All of the neon signs are turned off. Um, people are wearing these, you know, blue mouse suits. They're not allowed to wear makeup or have their hair curled. So it's, I'm, I'm trying to show as well the, the evolution of a city. Mm-hmm. And Shanghai is a wonderful place for that. Now, do you have family there? My father is actually born and bred in Shanghai. He was born in 1923, um, and we still have family out there. It's sort of distant family, cousins of cousins. Um, but he, when I was a kid, he would tell me stories about okay. him growing up in Shanghai. I'm, I'm just wondering, okay, where? why did she decide to choose this as a setting? And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it grabbed you. It does. It yeah. does. And, and I actually, I love Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been there a couple times. It smells like money to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 All right, so you'll cast your film there. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. Now, what is it like living where you are now, considering, you know, you're writing about Shanghai and you, you know, you lived here, and what is it like where you are? Um, it's, um, it's mostly an advantage, I think, to be separated from both the object that you're writing about, Mm -hmm. as well as the language that I'm writing in. So, you know, everybody in Holland speaks Dutch, so I'm kind of in a bubble in terms of working with the language. Yes. It has its disadvantages as well, so idiomatic English, I'm losing completely. I haven't lived in the United States for over 30 years now. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, So, you know, if somebody tells me something, I don't know, bad, (laughs) you know, I I, I wouldn't even begin to know what... What What that that means, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally rad, Karen. (laughs) Well, I have to read, I have to listen, you know, Mm -hmm. listen to podcasts. Or I don't watch TV. Try to try to avoid that part. But right, yeah, it's so. I think that it has changed my vocabulary a little bit. Sure. Um, it it's so. Think, go ahead. 
Yeah, being far away actually makes it easier to see what you're writing about. Yeah, I was going to say, and I love how you switched careers and switch gears and this is such you're, you're so passionate about what you do you you have to get the story out yeah you know yeah that's fantastic do you have any advice for people that are uh, aspiring writers or they're writing working on something and they feel they've gotten a ton of rejections oh god just keep going <laughs> <laughs> um i i would say two things the, the there are plenty of people out there who've been rejected all over the place. Uh, it took me five years to write this novel and a whole year to just to, to flog it, to, to find somebody who would be willing to publish it. And, you know, thank goodness that I found an independent publisher in the U.K. who did that. That's Luck great. Draw. Yeah. Um, you know, she happened to have a project that fell through at exactly the same time that I sent my letter in. Wow. Um. So I really seriously got lucky. Um, getting rejected doesn't necessarily have anything to say about the quality of your writing. It, it's just it needs to be a fit. It needs to be a fit time-wise. It needs to be a fit taste you know, in terms of what that particular publisher or agent is looking for. On the writing side, I think that people should just write. Um, I know that a lot of people can get blocked um, because they feel like the first sentence they put on the page isn't quite right. Mm-hmm. So they'll keep working it, and they'll keep polishing it, and they never get past that first sentence. And that was my great fear, that you know I would end up, after five years, with three really wonderful words mm-hmm. <laughs> and nothing else. Um, so I just write. I have, a, I have a daily quota of how many words I have to get onto the page, and they can be really awful, but I'll, at least okay. I'll have... Something. Yeah, something, something. That's yeah. great advice. I've heard a lot of people say they do have a daily quota. And, you know, just get it out there. Don't self-correct, just get it out there. Right, you know? absolutely. Where can people find out more about you? You can go onto my website. Um, it's uh, inkstonepress.com. And I've got a, a blog that I put up every week um, that I write. Um, about what I'm doing on in terms of the novel. I talk about the backstory to the characters or the history of Shanghai. I also kind of get off the rails sometimes and do politics. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, this thing that's going on with, with, with Harvey Weinstein is, is oh. quite a lot of fodder, actually, for the kinds of things that I write about. Yes, that's um, good. You can follow me on Twitter or on, even on Instagram. Fantastic. Thank you so much for calling on the show. I really have enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, this will be up on my show blog, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that's a wrap for this segment with author Karen Cow. We're talking about her debut novel. If you missed any part of it, again, it's up on the show blog, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. And I am on Twitter at moms, M-O-M-Z underscore rock. If you want to find out about being a guest, you can email me at Janine, J-A-N-E-A-N-E, at KUCI.org.